Welcome to Trauma-Informed Caring, an Essential Conversations podcast brought to you by the Mid-America Addiction Technology Transfer Center, funded by SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Although funded by SAMHSA, the content on this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of SAMHSA. We begin this episode as we begin all of our episodes with a brief grounding practice, acknowledging that sometimes the information and the conversation that we have in this podcast can be activating for our stress response. So we invite you into this brief practice as a way to first ground ourselves and prepare ourselves for the conversation. Begin by bringing your attention into your body. Close your eyes or soften your gaze, whichever is more comfortable for you. Notice your body seated, wherever you're seated, just feeling the weight of your body on the chair or on the floor, and take a few deep breaths. As you take a deep breath, bring in more oxygen, enlivening your body, And as you exhale, have a sense of relaxing more deeply. You can notice your feet on the floor. Notice the sensations of your feet touching the floor, the weight and pressure, any vibration or heat. Notice your legs against the chair. Notice without judgment if there are certain thought patterns at play in your mind. Notice your back against the chair. Any pressure, pulsing, heaviness, or lightness. Acknowledge anxiety, stress, numbness, or anything else that's present. Notice any emotions or thoughts and bring your focus back to your breath. Bring your attention into your stomach area. If your stomach is tense or tight, let it soften. Take a breath. Notice your hands. Are your hands tense or tight? See if you can allow them to soften, to relax. Notice your arms. Feel any sensation in your arms. Let your shoulders become soft and relax. Notice your neck and throat, any tension, let them be soft, relax. Soften your jaw and let your face and facial muscles become soft. Then, Notice your whole body present. Take another breath.
Be aware of your whole body as best as you can. Take a breath. And then when you're ready, open your eyes and come back to this moment. Thank you, Allie. I'm Andrea Dalton. And I'm Roxanne Pendleton. And this is Trauma-Informed Caring. We're delighted to have you with us for this podcast today. It is our goal that by exploring varied perspectives, we can nurture knowledge and inspire courage for practical, transformative action. And we would like you to meet our guests. So... Allie, let's start with you since you led our beautiful mindful grounding practice at the beginning. Tell us about you and what you're up to in the world. So I am Dr. Allie Morton. I'm an assistant professor at the Monroe Meyer Institute, which is in Omaha, Nebraska. And so I am a psychologist that mainly works with kids across the ages. So like two to 20 which is pretty wild. And then with the rest of my time, when I'm not in clinic seeing patients, I am doing a bunch of other things, which is really fun. So I help with training with our Mid-America Mental Health and Technology Transfer Center and do work mainly on trauma-informed care and how that crosses over into primary care settings. So kind of bringing both of those roles together. Yes. Thank you. And to be clear, a a technology transfer center is just that, right? An organization that's seeking to bring what we learn in the research into practice in the real world. So it's actually valuable and helping change lives, right? Yeah. Explain that good enough. (laughs) Yeah. That was a perfect explanation. Really focusing on just disseminating and educating other people in the workforce. So I get to do hopefully individual level change. So making an impact with people on a personal level, and then also at that larger, more systemic change. Excellent. Thank you. And Hannah, tell us about you. Yes. Um, nice to meet you guys. My name is Dr. Hannah Granjanette, um, and I'm also at the Monroe Meyer Institute with Allie. Um, I'm a postdoctoral fellow, um, which means I, I just got my PhD and I'm working on Congratulations. Getting, like, Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> working on getting licensed as a psychologist. Um, so I, I also work with kids um, across the age range, so about two to 20 as well. Um, and similar to Ali, I work with MHTTC as well, just working on um, developing those practical resources. Um, and then I do a lot of trauma work with the clients that I see. Um, a lot of my trauma work also is with individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities and really okay. bridge that ga- gap because that's um, an area that that is just really important to focus on. Thank you so much. Thank you both for the work you're doing in the world and who you're being in the world and for taking time out to meet with us and our listeners. So this season of the podcast, we have been focusing on the intersection of trauma-informed caring and diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, justice, and access. And so our first question for each of you today, and you can take this any direction you'd like, is where do you see that intersection happening in your work or in your life? Oh, 
Um, so I think Allie and I are fortunate to work for an organization that really prioritizes um, trauma-informed care. And we we really also prioritize or work towards prioritizing um, how we adapt that to individuals with different abilities and different identities. So in my work with individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities and trauma, um, you really do have to think about the intersection between these two movements and how we can really help adapt our trauma treatments to those individuals. Yes. Right. So. Because, well, so Hannah, what I'm thinking is, as I'm listening to you is um, for so long, trauma-informed caring, it's not a new practice. It's been around, we're working on 20-ish years now, maybe a little more, but it's not getting to everyone equally, right? It's not, the practice is not being delivered to everyone equally. And it seems like your work you're being very specific about seeking out communities where it perhaps has not yet um, been offered or taken hold. And so you're, you're bringing to them access to this kind of world changing uh, way of, of doing whatever you do. Well, and I think there's an acknowledgement in there that like sometimes the way we thought was the best way to do something for people with a particular diagnosis or set of uh-huh set of symptoms, set of behaviors, um, that that doesn't work for everybody. And and I think that that is an interesting contrast with the medical model that I think a lot of us have. Which is if you have X diagnosis, you take (laughs) X pill and this many milligrams and wait, what a minute. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, And we have these really great trauma treatments, right? Right. Um, And we, we have to figure out ways that we can adapt them and make them more accessible to individuals that those trauma treatments just might not work quite right for them, or we need to just modify them in a different way to make them more accessible. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in a way you are at the cutting edge of you are, you are creating as you go, as you interact with your clients, new and better ways to care for those who need it. So I, again, that's exciting work. And and I just always like to jump in and say things about, you know, evidence-based practice and that that really is evidence-based practice, right? It's taking what we know from research and it's also taking what we know about the people that we're serving. And it's, it's not one or the other. There's a, you know, and it's also just, what do I bring as the clinician or as the practitioner or as the a supportive person who, you know, whatever role that might be for that person. But, you know, we put all that together and that's really what creates an environment where hopefully people are able to heal, um, grow, change, you know, whatever it is they're looking for out of that interaction. And especially when we think about also um, how do not only I personally do this with my clients, but just as Ali was talking about, how do we disseminate these materials to other providers as well so that lots of providers feel comfortable doing these things um, so that we can further increase that access? Yeah, it's great. Allie, how about for you? This is kind of in every aspect of my professional life and partly because I want it to be so. So I actually, when I was an undergrad student, I worked in a research lab at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln that focused on group therapy for kids that had experienced sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, Hannah was actually in the same research mm-hmm. lab. We've got lots of like crossover in our lives. It's awesome. And I was really nervous about doing that 
long-term for my professional career because of burnout. So I went to graduate school, but did like a generalist training program. So I was trained on anything and everything, kids, teenagers, adults, and throughout graduate school and afterward, all of my training kept coming back to working with kids and families that had experienced trauma and helping just promote resilience and Mm -hmm. healing. And so I've been able to make it almost like a specialty, something that I want to have some sort of emphasis or like special time carved out in my profession. And I've been really lucky to be fully supported to do that. Um, And similar with the diversity, equity, and inclusion. So when I was an intern, um, which is like the final year of our doctoral training, where we do basically a year of all clinical work. So we still have people watching over us before we get kind of the final send off into the real world to make sure like you are okay. You are not going to cause significant harm to people as a professional. Right. And we had a cultural humility didactic series that we had to do throughout our year-long training as trainees to really look at implicit bias um, Mm -hmm. and just microaggressions. Mm -hmm. What are things that we do as people and as professionals that's actually harmful or counteractive? to the work that we are actively trying to do as psychologists and therapists and just people in the mental health profession. And I was able to take that curriculum that was created by the people at my internship site and bring it here. And so that's actually something that I'm doing with the postdoc fellow. So Hannah is getting all of that with me right now too. Um, And so I think just to really piggyback off of what Hannah was saying, there's a lot of support for us to continue to grow and improve in this. And this happens a lot more than I think we realize as people that work at the Monroe Meyer Institute, because it's specifically created for individuals and families that have intellectual and developmental disabilities. And so we have that kind of recognition naturally in all the work that we do that I think sometimes we forget that we're doing something that is along that vein of equity and inclusion and respecting or at least recognizing diversity within the families that we serve. Yeah, I think what you're doing, it's almost like you're living in this internal culture that's quite a bit different from the external culture of of the world and many organizations. And so to build on that strength that you have inherent in in where you work in your culture, can you share some ways that your organization really does seek to provide each person with respect and, you know, honor their dignity, honor their, their inherent worth, as well as their wisdom of lived experience, you know, simply because I might have a developmental disability or an intellectual disability does not mean I don't have a lot to bring to the table, right? Mm -hmm. So can you share with our listeners some ways that you um, really seek to honor those that you work with and um, their inherent, you know, lived experience and wisdom? Yeah. I think a lot of us really view the patient or the person we're working with and their family as the experts. Because like you said, 
they've got this lived experience. I might know about these things in a professional capacity, but that can be very different to having that experience and living with something day in and day out and knowing what that's like for years on end and navigating these systems too with that experience, whether it be a label or, you know, whatever it is that they're kind of bringing to the table, like you said. And so I think just really treating the family as the expert, we have so much knowledge and information that we can gain from them. If they're willing, if we are willing to listen and ask the right questions and come with at least some sense of humility and respect for what they're saying. Um, And I think we just try not to make assumptions or underestimate people. Because I think that's something that, unfortunately, a lot of individuals with an intellectual or developmental disability might experience, um, is that there's a lot of assumptions made about their abilities, what they can do and what they can't do, what they can be affected by or not affected by. And that's something that Hannah and I uh, kind of see a lot when it comes to trauma and there being an assumption of like, well, if a child has an intellectual or a developmental disability, can they even be affected? Like, do they have these traumatic symptoms? And the answer is yes, because they're a person. Maybe we're just not asking the right questions, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or we're not looking at it from the best lens for them, kind of to see that experience for what it might be. That's interesting too. I'm I'm also thinking like, I think there are situations where the opposite might happen too. Like we might over assume how much somebody may be affected by something Absolutely. simply because we think it was a really bad thing that happened. Um, and, and their perception may not be the same. And so, you know, what we identify as like goal areas and needs to address uh, may not actually honor what that person's experience is in that way too. Or their most pressing need. Like we yeah. might say, you're in my assessment, you know, you need to deal with X. So maybe some aspect of um, uh, healing from trauma, right? Mm-hmm. They may have a very different goal that they need to work on right. that's making their life unmanageable. And so if we don't listen to them, I loved how you said, we asked questions and then you came back later and said something on the lines. I think it was you, Hannah, but one of you said, and then we asked different questions. Like we're willing to continue asking questions till we ask the right questions. I think that in itself is really humility. Not even assuming that the question I have is the, the right question to get to the answer. And really, as you described that, the sense I got was really collaborating with your client, even if they're two, really collaborating on um, what what the need is and how you can best support them based not only on maybe their diagnosis, but their strengths. Yeah. The things that they, I loved how you said, not just that they are experts on themselves, but they have expertise in navigating these systems. Wow. Drawing on that, respecting that. How would that change things if everyone, you know, did that? Thank you. Yeah, be- Because as a person in this system, And as someone with a lot of privilege, what I think it's like for them and what it's actually like for them can be vastly different. And what am I going to miss and not even consider or put on the table for them if I 
am not willing to hear out what that experience is like or try to understand what that's like for them. So I think it's a lot of flexibility and humility that we try to bring in order to do our best job. Because like Hannah said, if we're not willing to ask different questions, try to really get at things or respect, you know, what they're saying is the most important need or their goal, regardless of kind of what picture it is that we're seeing, what progress are we going to make? How are we actually going to help them? So that makes me think of another question. And I'm a music therapist. I don't think I told you all that before, but so I worked in inpatient mental health settings most of my clinical career. And in that work, you know, I always really valued individualization and paying attention to, you know, what is the patient really telling me, uh, either through their words or their actions or both as much as possible. And, you know, tried to actively stay in that place of humility as much as I could. And I think one of the challenges that I found and actually contributed to a lot of burnout for me was that I was, I felt like I was constantly working at odds with the system that I was working within that did not value those things that kind of um, seemed to prioritize doing things the way we always did them uh, or doing things in a way that was like, I don't know, most economically sustainable or, I don't know, continued to just degrade the humanity of the people we were working with. I mean, maybe that wasn't overt, but it was embedded in the way policies and processes were carried out. So my question then is, in your work, first of all, reassure me that I'm not alone. And then second, <laughs> and then alone. second uh, I know I'm not alone. I've had this conversation with a lot of people, but second, what do you do? to manage that? Like, how do you navigate those kinds of things? How do you know when to step in and advocate? Or then how do you deal with not stepping in to advocate? Uh, That's kind of a big question. You can take that wherever you'd like. I have an initial thought, which I think just answers a part of your question, but I've I've thought a lot about this. Um, And Allie, kind of you started to talk about as well, like burnout and like, will I get burnt out and doing the work that I'm doing? And I think a a precursor to all of the things that you're talking about is making sure that you aren't burnt out, right? Um, And taking that intentional time to have the the mindfulness practices that you choose to practice and making sure you have good work-life balance. Um, Because if we don't have those things, we can't help the people that we're trying to help and we might miss things um, or we may allow our implicit biases to become larger than they are. Um, so, So I think one big piece is is making sure that you focus on your own burnout. Mm-hmm. I did, incidentally. I <laughs> I did a lot of work around that. Uh, yeah. Something I'm but I realized, like, that's the thing, though. Like, I didn't realize that that was driving a lot of my, well, and ultimately, I mean, the more I've learned now, I think it was probably more moral injury mm-hmm. that was driving that than mm-hmm. just burnout itself. Um, there, It's complicated. So I've done a lot of work on that. Yeah, but you're absolutely right. Like it took, um, it took a lot of patience also, I think with myself and remembering that I'm a human being too. And of course I'm affected by those things as a human. So what do I need? How do I take care of myself? Uh, I'm still not great at that. I'm 
I'm always trying to do stuff for other people. <laughs> I think it's really important though, this distinction or this dynamic that uh, we're talking about here is that cultural norms, dominant cultural norms, mm-hmm. all the isms, if you will, they don't just affect our clients, mm-hmm. right? All the different discriminations, all the different ways of harming a human being aren't just happening to those we serve. So there's this kind of double layer of we see it in those we serve. We also feel it and experience ourselves to different degrees, depending on what the dominant norm is. And um, what I hear Andrea and Hannah saying, and Allie is giving lots of nonverbal feedback, if you all could see her, that caring for our own wellness, um, taking that intentional time to be well, and do what it takes to be well, is really the best way to be able to show up and fight those norms and change them. Mm-hmm. And I think that we don't, especially that we're four women right now talking. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to generalize. Uh, women tend to first think of how they can help. And then later, if they have time <laughs> or when they burn out and their doctor says they need to take time, then they're like, oh yeah, and what do I need? Mm-hmm. And so this idea of simultaneously caring for yourself as you care for others is a pretty powerful practice. And I wonder if you have any additional tips or um, practices or things you can share with our listeners um, that have helped you stay well, because you're doing very, you're doing work in very painful, in the midst of very painful experiences for people. Do you have any tips or tools that you would like to share with our with our listeners? I think it's really important to figure out what works for you because it's going to look so different for who you are as a person. And so for me, one of the things that I found through graduate school and like really wanting to specialize in working with kids and families that have experienced trauma is it's so important for me to like process that and digest it without getting stuck or ruminating. Mm -hmm. And that's a really fine line, but I've learned to just listen to myself and know when I'm okay and when I'm not okay and what helps me and when I need to seek out help. So for me, if I'm having a rough day or if I've had just a really tough session with a patient of mine, I let myself feel it for at least the rest of the day. And I might be way more intentional than I normally am about, okay, I'm not going to look at email after work, or I'm definitely going to go for a walk or go to the gym or call one of my friends or family, do an activity that I know will help me just work through those emotions or whatever I'm feeling without necessarily talking about the session or what was shared Mm -hmm. that is like creating these feelings. And I know that for me, if I'm having those feelings or thoughts linger for more than a day, I need to seek supervision, whether it's processing with, you know, someone that I work with or seeking out like more kind of structured supervision that lets me know that whatever I normally do is not working in the way that I need it to. And so that is kind of my next step. And I've also tried to 
make sure that the people around me that I trust know what my tells are because I'm also very community care. Yeah. And I'm very (laughs) stubborn. I won't ask for help, which is Mm -hmm. like pretty hypocritical as a psychologist. I get it. Um, But so I will try to make sure that if, you know, my husband or one of my best friends or the person whose office is right next to mine is like, are you okay? You like something seems off what's going on. Or like, I think you need to do something a little bit differently. I might be reactive to them, but I really try to listen and then figure out, okay, what, what do I need? Cause something's different. They wouldn't bring it up if it weren't true. Mm-hmm. So I need to listen. And it is so hard. You're right, Ellie. It's so hard when these people who you've given permission, right. verbally or non-verbally, you def- you've given them permission to care for you and to point out to you uh, when you're not okay. And it's sometimes so hard to not be defensive about that, right? And so I think uh, what I would add to that, and I love how you described that, um, you you really described some self-care practices. And really, then the next thing was like, how does your community care for you? Um I think it's really important to have those dialogues with the people who are going to speak truth to you when you need to hear it about how, how they can handle your response, you know, encourage Mm -hmm. them to take care of themselves (laughs) and then to have some maybe built in, um, practices for, uh, clearing that out, you know, whether you call it apologizing or forgiving or uh, restoring or rebuilding relationship. Um, I think that's, we don't, we don't often understand when we're in a trauma that the people who love us are also kind of in it with us, yeah. right? And I heard this term, you all may know it because you um, are in the field, uh, but I had not heard it or it hadn't stuck with me, this term um, um, co-survivorship. Mm-hmm. Like you have the trauma survivor and you have those who love them or live with them and they're in something too. And so... Um, the, the next step that I think about is in addition to surrounding myself with people who are going to notice and say, Hey, you, you're not okay. Are you is then I want to circle back and also be able to care for them and acknowledge. I get that my woundedness is impacting you. And I, instead of getting defensive about it and saying, well, you're not that easy to live with either. Like, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, I've said, I'm going to be honest just really have back to humility, right? Having that humility to be like, oh my gosh, this thing that is so big that it is impacting me is also impacting my beloveds. Mm-hmm. And how can we together kind of sit next to each other and look at that as the problem versus making one another the problem? And communication is so hard. Right? Yeah. And I think that's where it's also so important, especially in my job, but I see it like happen in my personal life too, of we don't just need to rely on verbal communication, mm-hmm. even though that is, especially the expectation with kids as they develop that ability, we can rely on other forms of communication. That is the beauty of it. And so I think that also helps to take some of that pressure off. And so sometimes I'll text my husband on the way home or before I even leave the office, like today was rough. I do not want to talk about it. And can we do something? That's so good. Figure out what that process is because my husband also had a like very intense job and we had to get to the point where we could say like, I know that you want to talk about it. I can't hear 
what you want to talk about because of my own, like, that'll be the thing that puts me over the edge. Mm -hmm. So is there something we can do together or who else can you talk to? Because as much as I want to, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. So let me repeat that to you, because I think that is a brilliant practice that probably could save many marriages, (laughs) (laughs) especially marriages of people who are up to doing good things in the world, like marriages between activists, marriages between caregivers, marriages between, you know, I mean, so if I can just say it back to you, you communicate like before you're together, you're self-aware enough that you're like, whew, today was hard for me. And you acknowledge it, you communicate, you said you texted, and then that person could say, I've got the capacity to just hear you today or not. The person could say, I've also had a really rough day. And here's the part I, it's because you didn't say, and leave me alone. Like, and we're going to come home. We're going to drink it out in our separate quarters. And we are not going to talk. Do not cross that middle line. The couch is the middle line. Do not come across the couch. (laughs) Like (laughs) what you said was, which I'm just like, my heart is growing. Like, you know, the Grinch is growing three sizes. What you said was, I I don't have the capacity to listen to you. You don't have the capacity to listen to me. What can we do together that is still going to enhance our connection and soothe that stress response? Mm -hmm. This is beautiful. Thank you, Allie. What good advice. I mean, I hope so. And this doesn't always happen. Of course not. Um, It's the ideal, right? What, you mean you're not perfect? (laughs) I know. It's shocking. It really is. (laughs) We've done a lot of trial and error and we were, so my husband and I were long distance for the majority of our relationship. And all you have is communication when you don't have like that physical presence Mm -hmm. or time spent with someone. And so we had to get really good at it or not be together. Like those were, it was a forced choice scenario, but I think it has really benefited us, especially in that way. And if one of us says like, I'm sorry, I can't, we've gotten to a place where it's like, okay. And we just move on. It doesn't need to be a thing because it's not with malicious intent. Right. Right. But that's happening. And so I think having that respect to, if someone is communicating with you, like they are not in the place where they can hear you or be supportive in a way without hurting themselves. Cause mm-hmm. that's not what it's intended to be. That's hard though. Yeah. Yeah. I think that leads to another question that we've been sort of throwing out there now and then throughout this podcast series, which is like, what are some good tips for trauma-informed communication, uh, especially through this lens of diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, belonging, and access? Anything that comes to mind for either of you? Yeah. One of the things that I have noticed more, again, both like personal life as a human and professionally is a lot of the time, if someone is saying that they're having a hard time or trying to express their feelings, like especially little kids, if they're really angry about something or if they get hurt or frustrated because like their toy tower gets knocked over, a lot of us have this like natural instinct to be like, oh, it's okay. It's fine. Mm-hmm. And that can be really invalidating. And so I think just acknowledging where someone is without that like instinctual desire to fix it yeah. or t- 
tell them like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Because that sucks when you're on the receiving end of it, right? If someone's like, oh, that five page paper you just worked on is gone. That's no big deal. Why are you getting so upset? I would be through the roof if someone said that to me. And so I think just acknowledging someone's emotions Mm -hmm. and, and just listening that has so much more power than we recognize. Yeah. Yeah. I think always just paying attention that we're not minimizing, uh, and, and doing it for ourselves too. I mean, I, I'm guilty of it a lot. I know like, yeah, I'll say, Oh, I'm fine. It's no big deal. Right. I'll when get, I'll get over it. You how you are. I, I feel like I always say good. Uh huh. Not always good. Why is that the word that I'm using? I'm lying. Yeah. I love that. I was just going to say something similar. Um, and that when we have individuals that disclose a trauma to us, or if we're just talking in our own lives about things that are difficult to us, really taking what they're saying and not, um, and I noticed that I do this more when I'm burnt out, but I'm not ranking it as like, well, my day is worse than your day. Or like, Mm -hmm. I have these problems compared to the problems that you have. And I do that a lot with my husband, right? Like we're in different lines of work and my stressors at work are different than his stressors at work, but they're both stressors that impacted our day. Mm -hmm. And it's important to, to acknowledge both of those. Um, and so, so that's something that I'm working to always do is acknowledge everybody's difficulties that they're experiencing and, and take them as they are. I think that's really powerful. And it's a, it seems like a tiny tip and yet it is really monumental. I think, I don't know why humans do this, but we often will one up, mm-hmm. you know, you think your day was bad. Let me tell you about my day or we'll, put ourselves down. We'll at least ourselves, we'll say, well, my day was rough, but at least it wasn't as bad as, mm-hmm. you know, my job is hard, but at least I have a job. Um, and when we do either one of those, we minimize by at leasting ourselves or someone else, or we one up, which is another way of denying someone else's experience. <laughs> I try to remind myself that we all have a nervous system. Yeah. <laughs> And stress is stress. Pain is pain. And so the same pain running through me at something that broke my heart, even if it's not on the scale of devastation as like, you know, someone's in a war zone, right? We all have pain and all pain is valid and worthy of being heard. And if I can tell myself that, especially if I can tell myself that when I'm the one who feels like my pain is bigger, (laughs) And again, there's that word humility. I think that's our word for this episode. Um, If I can infuse some humility and allow some spaciousness that we both have pain, both pains are valid and they all need attention and um, care. Wouldn't that that be um, a different kind of world to live in? Different kind of relationship experience? Yeah, for sure. And I just want to, you know, throw a wrench in it because that's what I like to do. Um, it also makes me think though of times where I've been in, I've had some experiences in the last few years related to diversity, equity, inclusion work where, um, I have been, I have been in positions of power in situations where, uh, people have been harmed, uh, maybe not directly by me, but as a result of decisions made within the organization that sort of thing. Um, this is not a work-related thing, but um, 
I think one of the challenges that I have often felt is that, you know, harm has happened all around. Um, I've been harmed as well. And I, I think I also acknowledge, though, that I have a lot of privilege in those spaces in comparison to some of my um, colleagues in that space where the harm that has happened to them, I think, is worse. Like, um, I don't know how to say that any other way. Um, well, what I, I think, what I hear you saying is that there are definitely deeper cuts. Right. You know, things happen right. and there are deeper cuts. For me, it's, uh, you know, it'll heal with a bandaid. Someone else is going to need surgery to stitch that up. Right. Right. And so, so I think the the question mm-hmm. that I have then is, you know, in those sorts of situations, when, yes, we all are coming in this with a level of pain, woundedness, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, it actually sometimes has not been helpful to acknowledge that, yes, we are all hurting right now because the pain that some folks are feeling in that space uh, around that particular is so much bigger. Yeah. I, and I've seen that, uh-huh. unfortunately, play out in uh-huh. really continued harmful ways. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't know if if Allie or Hannah, if you have any thoughts on on that. I'm I'm kind of giving you vague information. I know what I don't want to I don't want to violate the trust of some folks in that mm-hmm. space. But um the you know the the tension that that creates around like wanting to do good. You know, I don't think anybody uh, I mean I'll just speak for myself. I did not want to do any harm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that has not ever been my intention and my blind spots, my biases have made it so that I have contributed. Um, mm-hmm. and so there's that tension of like, you know, feeling that. And then also the whole situation has played out in such a way that I have too experienced some level of harm, uh, or pain. I don't know about harm, but pain for sure. And I think a lot of it is like moral injury. I mean, we talked about that already briefly, but the, you know, seeing people that I care about in pain at the same time, I don't know. There's, there's probably no good answer for like, how do you show up in a space like that? But i um, just curious what your thoughts might be on something like that. I will often come back to some steps that I got from a training on microaggressions which is acknowledge, apologize, atone. Mm. But the really all of those pieces get to be decided by the other person, especially the atoning. Like they get to choose if there's anything I can do to atone. And if they say no, then I have to accept that, which when you are the person who has been a part of the hurting, whether intentional or not, that's really tough because it feels unresolved and we want to resolve it. Yeah. And that discomfort can serve a purpose. Yeah. And I, when I am in those spaces, I think about, you know, even if I've been hurt, do I, does that make it okay for it to continue to happen to other people? Or do I want, to use that to then try to be a voice 
or be an ally Mm -hmm. for others. And I'm someone who I tend to go towards like angry and then actionable. Um, So for me, that can be a really helpful place to get to quickly of like, okay, well, I'm mad enough that I'm going to do something and I'm a pretty stubborn person. So if I feel strongly enough about something, I'm not going to let it go most of the time until I feel like I get some sort of acknowledgement or something that's going to try to prevent this from happening again. Mm -hmm. Um, And as someone with a lot of unearned power and privilege, that's something I get really uncomfortable with is like, well, should I be doing this? Why is it okay for me to do this? And then as this is a conversation I have with a lot of my like friends and colleagues, if not me, who else? Mm-hmm. And is it better to not have it at all than someone who is trying, knowing I'm going to mess up mm-hmm. and I'm going to have to own that. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. hard, but mm-hmm. I'm a human. And so I have these biases and blind spots, just like you were talking about that. I'm not choosing to have, I don't want them to be there and they are there. Mm-hmm. And so I have to just kind of then lead by example of acknowledging apologizing and atoning. Yeah, I like that. Thank you. Hannah, anything you'd add to that? No, I just love that you gave those steps so clearly, Allie. Um, The only thing that I would add to that, that I, I like to think a lot about the bystander intervention literature and how Mm -hmm. there's lots and lots of different ways to intervene. Um, And as someone with a lot of power and privilege, um, I may have a different way to intervene um, and I may feel comfortable with that. And there's lots of other ways to intervene um, that I may feel more comfortable in some spaces mm. compared to others. Um, so just thinking about that, there's lots of different ways that you could potentially intervene. Maybe you don't want to say something directly to them, but you're going to ask questions. Or you're going to go talk to somebody else. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's the other thought that I had when you were talking about, about that, Allie. I think yeah. that came um, to me, Andrea, when you said that was organizationally. Mm-hmm. system at, at yeah. the level of systems when there are situations in a system in an organization where yes everyone's having some level of pain but certain people groups have much deeper wounds mm-hmm. then what seems right to me is that the organization really center the support around those with the deepest wounds not not saying no one has wounds but really right. centered their efforts around those who have the deepest wounds. And maybe those are even historical traumas that are being mm-hmm. enacted. And so if the organization can take a look and see, yes, there's there's pain everywhere. And yet a certain group is not getting support uh, commensurate or you know equitable to what they need, right? We're not going to yeah. give everyone the same support. We're going to give everyone the support they need. Mm-hmm. And then those of us who are in those positions uh, perhaps of privilege, depending on the situation, knowing that we're part of the problem, knowing we do have some hurt, and yet exercising the freedom to not talk about our own pain. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Understanding that we can process that somewhere else. Somewhere else. Yep. So to me, I'm, I'm kind of looking at the tension between initially we were talking about stress is stress, pain is pain, all pain is worthy of being heard and seen. That remains true. Mm-hmm. And yet, if there's a situation where there are some cuts that are much, much deeper, certainly as groups and organizations, I would think 
the the best practice would be to center more than on supporting those who are most hurt, most wounded, and encouraging others who are able to find ways to, you know, maybe in supervision, talk to Mm -hmm. your supervisor about how you're feeling, but you don't need to talk about it in the group meeting where we're having a town hall about what's going on, right? Maybe that's one way to navigate that dynamic. Yeah. And I love that you brought up equity in that, in that description that not everyone needs the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so why would we give everyone the same thing? Um, That equity that can exist in the way we respond, acknowledging the trauma that is there. I mean, that's really what we're getting at. I think Mm -hmm. with this, with this series is in those kinds of moments where we have the opportunity to be trauma-informed and more equitable, increasing access, increasing inclusion, you know, all of those, all of those values that are embedded in, into those movements, you know, that I think it's like, you know, life-changing, right? World-changing, society-changing, at least that's the, that's the hope, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah. And I'm guided by that acronym we go back to, I especially thought about it when Allie was talking, um, that acronym of why am I talking? W-A-I-T, wait. Why am I talking? Like if I'm one of those people who has plenty of support, I don't need to be taking it right here, right? Why am I talking? Be quiet. <laughs> or why aren't I talking? Mm-hmm. There's another side to that, right? If I'm the one who can speak up and provide some kind of advocacy through my position, my unique position, or my unique privilege. So people will listen to me, you know, why aren't I talking? And in any situation, really taking the time to check in and see which of those needs to guide us. Why am I talking? Why aren't I talking? Yeah. I find that helpful. The W-A-I-T acronym. I love that. And that's kind of what I was thinking about as you were talking without it making near as much sense as that. <laughs> well, that's why I picked up on it. I'm like, oh, oh she's she's doing that. W-A-I-T. I've never heard that acronym before. I love that. I wish I could it, tell you where we got it. I It's not original to me. But I, but I think that's so true with the, act, the action piece, right? Like you were talking about like waiting and listening and making sure organizations focus on those who have been hurt the most. And I think as individuals within a system too, that's a great kind of guiding point for the role that we play at any certain time, knowing that it's going to change. So like right now, I'm the one who's leading a cultural humility series for the fellows. I don't expect to be the person doing that in a few years. I think it would be great if I'm not the person doing that mm-hmm. because there's likely someone better. Should that be someone who has different experiences or identities, maybe. And I think one of the things that we're seeing more within our organizations and systems is that we're trying not to put that pressure or role on the people of these different like identities or minoritized groups, that that is unfair to put them in that role and knowing when to step back and allowing for other people. So just as someone in the system who wants to be supportive or an ally, what does that look like for us? And knowing it's going to change likely moment to moment. Yeah, that's good. So I want to take us into the question that we've been asking all our guests 
And I think we're, I feel us leading to that. So what would you have everyone do? If you, if you had the power to tomorrow, have everyone wake up doing or stop doing one thing that would transform our systems, our organizations, our culture, our, I don't know, the way we show up for each other. What would you have people do? What would that be? One thing that I would say that I think is is helpful when you're thinking about, about these topics would be to just have that intentional time with a colleague or a supervisor where you can really discuss these things and have somebody mm-hmm. help you check your biases um, yeah. and talk through those biases and figure out, okay, if these are my biases, what are my action steps? Um, I just think that that is, is one thing that we can all um, try to do and I, I try to do and I need to be better at as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I feel kind of stuck between two. I think this idea of like competency or expertise can be really problematic at times of like, well, if I do, you know, so many trainings or once I hit the 10 year mark in my profession, that that's it. Like I know enough and I shouldn't take feedback from others or I don't need to like seek out that continual growth. Um, So that's one thing. That I'd like to see like shift or change that maybe everyone has that driving sense to continue to learn and grow and that there's, we're never going to hit like the end of it. Yeah. The other thing that's been going through my mind throughout our conversation is this dialectical. So replacing, but with, and, um, which is like huge in the DBT world and is something that at first I thought was kind of silly. I'm going to be totally honest. And now I feel like it's life-changing. I use it all the time. And I think it's something that has so much power to just replace a but with an and because Mm -hmm. both things can be true. And it can be hard to recognize how two things that feel so competing or opposite can both be true. But that acknowledgement is something that can be really powerful. Yeah, for sure. Because the world is messy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and things that seem like total opposites can both be true. Yeah. Love that. This has been an excellent and in some ways challenging and in other ways inspiring discussion. Thank you so much to our guests. We have four takeaways today. The first one is that you really cannot do the work of trauma-informed caring unless you are also practicing diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, accessibility, belonging uh, in your work. And along those lines, we have an excellent resource in the show notes from the National Child Traumatic Stress Network about being anti-racist as central to trauma-informed care principles and practices. And you will be able to find those in the show notes And the takeaway is that this kind of work, this diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, access, belonging work is not only critical to being trauma-informed, it is literally transforming trauma-informed caring. And we are excited that our guests and everyone is a part of that. And we encourage you to be part of that. Our second takeaway for today is related to humility and flexibility and asking questions. And how do we really operationalize, I think, the principles of trauma-informed caring and of diversity, equity, inclusion, 
belonging, access, and justice. Putting that into practice looks like humility. It looks like paying attention to what people are saying and doing, what's important to them, Um, acknowledging that just because we're the expert, quote unquote, expert in the field, that doesn't necessarily mean that we are the expert in that person's life. They are the ones who are the experts in their lives. And uh, being able to step back and acknowledge how important that is and not force our way of doing something onto someone uh, is really essential in creating healing, in creating uh, growth, in uh, creating well-being. And the third takeaway is about um, taking intentional time in this work to be well and support wellness for yourself and figuring out what works for you. So there were some great tips about processing without ruminating. There were some great tips about um, surrounding yourself with people who can know when you need help and and speak up and help you um, get the help you need. We talked about communication in many ways, which Andrea is going to unpack in a minute. I just want to underline that as we do this work, it's not only impacting those we serve, it's impacting us. And so having ways we care for ourselves uh, is not selfish. It is actually what allows us to rise and fight the good fight another day. And then we did have to pull out communication as its own takeaway from this episode because it wove its way throughout everything we talked about. And we wanted to really highlight uh, some of the conversation we had around what it means to be trauma-informed in our communication, acknowledging others' emotions, acknowledging our own emotions, listening, remembering that we all have pain. And yet in some circumstances, it's more important that we listen and honor another person's situation, uh, recognizing our own privilege and bias and how that might show up in our ability to communicate uh, in the ways in which we communicate. And so we have a lot of suggested practices, things like acknowledge, apologize, atone, um, and the other person gets to decide what they need in that, uh, considering bystander intervention strategies. um, And then also Things like our WAIT acronym, why am I talking or why aren't I talking? Having that opportunity for self-reflection and how critical that really is to our ability to communicate in trauma-informed ways. So lots of good takeaways from this episode. Allie and Hannah, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. This was really enjoyable. I, I'm also a little sad it's over. I'm not going to lie. I kind of wish I could Aww. do this for the rest of my oh, life. We can have you back. <laughs> it's certainly been a great way to start our week. What a wonderful, we're recording this on a Monday. So what a way to kick off the week. And I just want to thank you guys both for making us feel so comfortable today. I really felt like we could have a genuine open conversation. And I do feel like that's because of you guys and how comfortable you made us feel. So just thank Agreed. you. You are welcome. Thanks for being here. All right, listeners, you can find other episodes of our podcast at the Mid America ATTC website, as well as a variety of other resources. We also want to point you to our virtual room of refuge, where you can find lots of support for your own well being and also access to our YouTube channel. And uh, you can subscribe to our newsletter, Conscious Connections, there as well. So thanks again for joining us. It is our hope that where you work and where you live, this podcast will offer you practical support for the practice of trauma-informed caring. 